This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good morning, Equalizer Extra subscribers. It's time for another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 52 of the Equalizer podcast. That's right. This has been a year-long endeavor at this point. And uh, what better way to celebrate than to do one live and in person. We, uh, I'm here with uh, John Halloran and for the first time ever, Caitlin Best. Hello. Because uh, we are here in Portland to watch some preseason games, uh, specifically the Portland Invitational which this year features uh, Portland Thorns, the Chicago Red Stars, Rain FC, and uh, the US U23 squad. Um, today we saw the Rain take on the U23s, and then we saw Chicago play Portland. Um, so let's start. I mean, let's start with the first game of the day. Let's talk about Rain versus the U23s. Uh, that was kind of, I mean, not a lot happened in this match. It ended 2-1 rain, um, but we all saw it. So what did you think? John, you want to go first? Yeah, I think the big takeaway for me was that uh, I was really impressed with the rain's attacking talent. Um, when you look at that front line today, it was Pino on the left, Taylor uh, in the nine spot, and Jenkins out on the right with Yanez at that uh, attacking midfield. You know, they were able to create a lot. And I think, you know, that's even without, you know, Shea Groom, um, that's that's without Spencer. So I think that even when they lose Pino um, to the World Cup, they're still going to have a really potent attack. And Jenks, Jenkins has three goals in two games now. So um, I think that's something that they did a nice job of picking that player up. And obviously Groom coming in this year, too, that uh, – They've really built a lineup that I think is capable of taking them through the uh, the World Cup uh, the World Cup gap as well. Caitlin, any thoughts? I was actually going to say the opposite of what John just said. Not the opposite. I think he's right, but I was impressed. The thing that stuck out to me was I was impressed with the U23s defending. I thought they did pretty good against the rain. Um, I thought Ali Watt showed really well. That's not a player I'd ever seen before. Um, and they didn't have many chances on goal, um, but they did steal one in the end. And yeah, I don't know. They, they came out strong against a obviously a professional side. So I was impressed with the U23s and that that's always a fun matchup for me to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think my main takeaway from it was more, I mean, we talk a lot about how it feels like nothing happened in the offseason, how a lot of these teams, especially the ones at the top of the top, you know, edge of the table, 
um, look similarly to how they did last year. And I think maybe one of the main takeaways for me from the rain, especially when you saw, um, you know, Morgan Andrews and Darian Jenkins, that they do have some changes that were perhaps underrated when they happened, but could end up really having an impact on the way uh, the rain's season goes because they're 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 a team that they have a lot of Australians they're going to be losing their prominent players and last year they did struggle to score and so I think that there may be some small pieces that could make a big difference and that showed a little bit in the game um today and yeah I agree I mean the U23s looked like they were defending very hard for the full 90 minutes but I thought in general um they did a nice job and I think also and it was this preseason so you don't want to put too much uh, emphasis on it, but there was this similar issue of finishing for the rain. They had a couple of chances <laughs> that seemed like there was no way that they were not going to score. And then uh, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't make it. Um, so yeah, but I, that, that game was, that game was fine. It was, a, it was mostly uneventful. It kind of went in a similar way than expected. Um, the, Portland, Chicago was a little bit more evenly, evenly matched, you might say. Um, you had international and national team players playing for both teams. Uh, it seems like from what we talked about, we talked to um, some people after the match, it sounded like those teams are a little bit more banged up than maybe people had uh, realized. Not so much that it could necessarily affect the start of the season a ton, but just affect the trajectory of some players preseason um portland won that game two to one uh you know i'll kick that over too john what do you think um i think the biggest thing with chicago and claire this is something we've talked about repeatedly is what are they going to do with davidson in that lineup how does that change and what we saw today was Ertz and and colaprico in that midfield which is fine and it worked out well i think but um now what do you do when morgan bryan is ready to go now what do you do when when vanessa di bernardo is ready to go because you have four center midfielders who would start uh, i think for any team in the league and you cannot get them all on the field and that's not even counting nikki stanton so how do you set the team up? You know, Chicago in the past, um, especially years ago, ran that diamond midfield. So maybe they go back to that. But they're going to have to get a little creative or they're going to have a starter on the bench. Um, so I think that's really something that, that Coach Dames is going to have to figure out. Well, it seemed like from today, it looked to me like, A, Julie Ertz was maybe – not given a ton of super specific assignments in the midfield. I think they just kind of let her play. Um, but it looked like when she was playing with Colaprico for the first 45 minutes, she the way that she and Colaprico played with each other was similar to what we saw between Morgan Bryan and Colaprico in the second half of last year, where they would they would line up more next to each other and then based on what was happening and where they were needed, they would kind of flip between that number eight and number six position. Um, which only feels radical, I think, in the context of the way Julie Ertz plays for the U.S. Because um, in the way that I think, obviously, the way we've seen, we talked about this in the wake of the She Believes Cup, that they have Julie Ertz sitting really deep in, in the, for the U.S. right now um, as the number six. But it looks like 
in this moment, um, even with Ertz playing in the midfield for Chicago, it's not necessarily in that kind of backlaying six role, which uh, which I thought was interesting because I definitely think that we've seen on a club at a club level that Julie Ertz sitting in that six, especially when she has Colaprico available, that's not necessarily the best use for her. Um, but yeah, the starting center back pairing today was Katie Naughton and Tierna Davidson, which is not insignificant because another big question coming out of the draft was what are you doing with Katie Naughton if Julie Ertz is playing center back? So obviously no definitive answers, but there were some indications as to what the coaching staff was thinking. Yeah, you know what's interesting too is that I think a lot of people forget that Ertz started playing in a midfield role for Chicago before she played that role for the U.S. And then after she had kind of become the established six for the U.S., she moved back to center back for Chicago last season. Um, and I think some of that was probably um, them deciding that that they were better off having Ertz and Naughton back there than Naughton and, and Sam Johnson at that time. Uh, and that problem obviously worked itself out with the trade. But now you've got Ertz going back into the midfield. And so you're right back to where you started with, you know, having too many center midfielders. So again, how this question resolves itself over the course of the season, I think is really going to go a long way to determining how successful Chicago is. Yeah. So from a Portland standpoint, they looked pretty sharp, I thought. Yeah, they did, especially in the first half. I, I thought uh, there's some bumps in there for sure, but but for the most part, they picked up pretty much, like, not far from where they left off. Yeah. And I think you look at, you know, especially their top players, Christine Sinclair, Lindsey Grant, Tobin Heath, all those players looked good today. Lindsey Grant did not... She second half she got a little rocky, but Lindsey Horan in the first half did not look like a player who hasn't played a professional soccer game in several months. I thought she looked really good to start. Tobin Heath had a great game, mm-hmm. um, and Christine Sinclair is Christine Sinclair, right? Um, but but in an interesting in, in a way, um, it seemed like the takeaway from Portland from this game was their good players are still very good. Yes. And their starters are right. incredibly talented. Right. But it didn't necessarily go super far in answering any questions are, well, about uh, what's going to happen when they're not there. I think, uh, right. It didn't because this was pretty close to a full-strength lineup for them. They're missing a few. They're missing Emily Menges, who picked up a knock in training. Um, AD France didn't play. She has some kind of minor injury, but she's expected to be okay come national team camp. Um See who else. Midge Purse, sort of same deal. Tyler Lucy filled in for her. Um, but yeah, other than that, pretty pretty close to the starting lineup. All the key players are sort of on the board. And then the really interesting thing for the Thorns is going to be Wednesday when we're going to get a, a radically different lineup. We're going to see all these depth players. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the Thorns, the Thorns and the Red Stars are in pretty opposite positions going into the World Cup because the Red Stars are retaining most or all of their midfield and the thorns are losing everybody in the center of the field um and so it's interesting in this tournament watching these two teams that are going to be in such different positions for the world cup sort of different questions sort of almost opposite questions that they're each looking to answer where the thorns have their what what their starting 11 ideal 
would be is already locked in. We know what that is. But the question is, um, who? what is that going to look like come the World Cup when they lose nine other players? Right, and that kind of speaks to John and I. We talked about this last week where obviously this season is going to come in stages and the, there's going to be a difference. There's going to be a difference in who the best team is at the beginning of the season, who the best team is throughout the World Cup break, and then right. who's going to finish the strongest and most likely do the well, do the best in the playoffs. Because you, we could have a situation where you have a team that really cleans up points during that World Cup break enough to make it to the playoffs, but when everyone is full strength, they are not, you know, they That's don't good. line up as well. So it, it's interesting because I think that the coaches do have to weigh that in the preseason, and I think you saw that a little bit um, today. Um, yeah, any closing thoughts about what y'all saw today? No, I just agree with, I mean, you look at the two teams, I think Portland and North Carolina, when the World Cup hits, how they deal with that is is going to be a big question mark because as we were talking about earlier, Portland's losing probably nine players. North Carolina, I think, is losing six. Um, you know, Chicago's losing, I think, four or five, five but, yeah. but they have players that they've already over the years kind of bled into those positions, gotten ready. They have options. You know, I'm not sure that that's, true on the other side now north carolina maybe they they won the icc last year in the middle of an international break so you know and riley's pretty good about thinking ahead so maybe he has a plan for that but i think that's you know when i went back last week and i think somebody said what's your bold prediction i said houston makes the playoffs it's there's there's going to be a six-week period here where certain teams are going to be playing at a much different level than we're used to them in comparison to the rest of the league yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I think, it, not so with Portland, it's not just the volume of players that they're losing, but it's which players are losing. And like I said earlier, like I mean, just in this game, looking at the difference between a the difference between a Thorns team with Lindsey Horan on it and a Thorns team without Lindsey Horan on it is massive. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a totally different team because she just, I mean, she's such a unique player. The way she plays, the way she has an impact everywhere on the field. And you take that out of the equation, and it's a different team. Um, and so even just losing that one player is going to totally change things. But, you know, they're losing her. They're losing, obviously, Christine Sinclair. They're losing Tobin Heath. And, th- like, those three players alone, if that was all they were losing, that would be a huge loss for them. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how they handle that because, uh, I mean, the players that they're losing are not players that you can replace with depth players. So Right. Yeah, so obviously no definitive answers today, but maybe a better look at what these teams are facing when it comes to the scope of the season. Cool. So we uh, we will take a little bit of a break. We will come back and we will talk about... There was one other preseason game of note this weekend, um, which will lead us into some serious USM's national team roster conversations. So uh, stay tuned for that. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 52 of the Equalizer podcast. Uh, I'm Claire Watkins. I am joined by John Halloran and Caitlin Best. Uh, We were talking preseason. The other 
Uh, main preseason game between two NWSL clubs this weekend was between the North Carolina Courage and the Orlando Pride, where North Carolina walked away with that one with a 4 nothing win. Uh, which, uh, we, I don't think any of us got to see that game in full, but, um, definitely shows kind of where both teams are going into the beginning of the season. Uh, I bring that up at the top of this, uh, this segment because this kind of rolls right into, uh, the new women's, U.S. Women's National Team roster dropped for the April friendlies uh, between the U.S. and Australia and Belgium, which is the last roster before the final World Cup roster, and uh, there was a big name right at the top of, uh, of that drop, and that was of Allie Krieger, who um, famously is sitting at 98 caps for the U.S. Women's National Team. She obviously played uh, defense uh, during the 2015 run, and for whatever reason hasn't been able to break back into that roster until now, because Kelly O'Hara cannot... Her, she's having trouble getting her ankle healthy, so I think Jill Ellis is looking at those right-back options. So, Allie Krieger, guys, are we surprised? What do we think? We're surprised. <laughs> Not because I don't think she's a good enough player. Uh, I just... I just didn't see it coming. Thought that, uh... Thought that Jill Ellis was done with her. I think the timing of it is bizarre because like, and I'll agree with that because why was she dropped in the first place? Still can't make heads or tails of that. Ellis at some point had just decided there are better options out there, tried every option she could think of and then realized, whoops, none of them are better. None of them are better. And now, oh my God, we're 10 weeks, 10 weeks away from the world cup and we're going to bring back a player who has not had a call-up in 18 months and I don't think has been capped in over two years mm-hmm. at this point. I think April 2017 was her last cap. So it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense to me. That's the part that I think is, is troubling is that, you know, when you look at the, the list of players, she's tried Casey Short and then for whatever reason stopped using Casey Short. She's played Emily Sonnet out of position. She's tried bringing in a college player in Emily Fox. She tried converting Sofia Huerta uh, to the position. She tried bringing Merritt Matthias in. She converted sort of Crystal Dunn to that position. Um, and, and you know, listen, some of those have worked to varying degrees. I think probably Dunn has been the most successful, although I would also argue she struggled during the She Believes Cup. So now we've gone two years of this, and now we're going, now we're going to bring somebody back in who by the time we get to the game against Australia will have not played a professional game in 209 days. Um, So that's certainly not setting Krieger up for success, but it also doesn't make sense why she was dropped in the first place and, and why over two years that Ellis couldn't settle in and just say, you know what, short's the best I got or Huerta's the best I got. Um, And now we're stuck in this situation where, you know, O'Hara can't stay healthy and, and now they're scrambling two and a half months ahead of the World Cup. Right. It's it's not so much... I don't think anyone... No one was surprised because they don't think Allie Krieger should be in the conversation. It's more just we have trouble figuring... We have trouble kind of re- getting inside Jill Ellis's head when it comes to the undroppables, the people that can't get back into camp, or the people who, get, who keep getting called into camp and then see no minutes... 
um, and especially in this outside back position where um, we think we have an idea of what Ellis is looking for. She wants attacking-minded outside backs, but the way that that has turned, what that has turned into is converting attacking players into outside backs or converting center backs into outside backs, both of which leave half of the job kind of not done. Um, and so, yeah, Allie Krieger comes back. Do you guys think she's going to get playing time in these games? I think she has to. Yeah? You can't bring you can't bring Allie Krieger in at this point in the cycle and not give her any minutes. I don't think you can. You don't think she could get just a lot of practice time and then Ellis... I guess she could show up to camp and do real bad and Ellis doesn't cap her. Right. I think she gets a game and she'll be sitting at 99 caps. There's just so many players over the years that Ellis has brought in for long stretches and just never given playing time to. So I'm not saying it's the right decision, but it would not shock me at all. If she got no game time? Correct. Yeah. You know, look at Matthias. Matthias was called in for long stretches of time. Huerta was called in, I think, for the for a year straight mm-hmm. uh, and maybe played three games. So it's it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't be out of character. Yeah. I do think the difference is that I would argue that Ali Krieger belongs more than those two players in that position on the national team. Um, but it might not be worth anything either. I was I know I, I we talked about this earlier today. I still don't really understand. I, I guess I sort of understand it. Casey Short, to me, seems like the next best option at right back, and I don't totally get why she seems to have fallen out of favor. She had a great game today against Yeah, we Heath. saw her. She, especially, she went one-on-one with Tobin Heath, who is on fire right now, and came out better in those one-on-ones more often than not. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we all what we all said, and, and I forgot to mention this in the last segment, but... She looks fresh. She looks healthy. She looks ready to go. Um, it like a player who hasn't played a game in a while, but like you said about Haran, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's odd to me that we see that energy in a preseason game and don't and can't understand how that doesn't translate to the U.S. Yeah, and you know, listen, Emily Sonnet is a very good player, but I don't think she's a right back, and I keep playing her out there. And she, you know, it's it's not the same. The angles you're reading are not the same. The positioning is not the same. The attacking mentality is not the same. And I I think they would just be better off playing a right back at right back. And they and they they don't. Ellis doesn't do it. They don't want to do that. Yeah. The real trouble is if Krieger does play and it goes poorly, and then right. they feel like they're back at square one and have one less game to have Which, used any of their other options. I do think there's a very, very real possibility that that's of exactly that happening. what happens. Yeah. Especially if she plays against Australia. Right. She's the same side. She's going to be on the same side as Ellie Carpenter. No, Ellie Carpenter's also on the right. She's also on the right. Um, Steph Catley? Steph Catley. Yeah. Right. Who is also somebody who could... And this is not this is not against... This is nothing against Ellie Grieger. This is me complimenting Steph Catley. Steph Catley is capable of, I think, absolutely roasting an Ali Krieger who hasn't played an international game in two years. Right. Um, and then the other major, the, the other thing that raised some eyebrows is the ongoing saga of the midfield for the U.S. Um, Ali Long is back in. Uh, Danny Colaprico, who we saw play 45 minutes today, um, was not called back into camp. Um, there's 
you know, a lot of talk about Morgan Bryan's situation. Uh, we know that Andy Sullivan is still on that roster, despite playing very, very little for the U.S. Um, and not uh, having a strong club season last year. Um, do we think that the U.S. has a clear concept of what they want for the midfield is my question. No. Absolutely not. No. Because there's nothing in this roster that indicates that they know what roles these players will have within this system. I mean, Ellie, Ellie Long might be the seventh or eighth player on the U.S. depth chart, and they would have been better off playing her over Mallory Pugh in, the, in those right. two she believed. They would have played better. They yeah. would have. There's, yep. I, there's no doubt in my mind. And she's not anywhere near the top of that depth chart right now. So it's just, it's, I don't think that there's, there's either no vision or there's this belief that, that they can create this vision out of nothing or, um, because again, th this idea of playing Pew and Lavelle together and then it's kind of stubbornly sticking with it when it was clear as day it wasn't working and that Mewis was going to be the one that solved it. And then, you know, big surprise, they put Mewis in and everything looks a lot better. Um, you know, I can understand Zerboni was probably still not fully recovered. So they, you know, they didn't give her um, those opportunities. But uh, the fact that Mewis sat on the bench, um, or at least didn't start the first two games was just baffling to me. Right. And it, and it seems like kind of in classic fashion, they're, they're running out of time, right? They're going to learn some things about Australia from the Australia game. Um, Belgium is a strong, they're a, a growing side, but I don't think that they are going to present the same challenges that the U S has seen earlier this year. Um, their final two games are against Mexico and New Zealand, which are probably not going to be particularly challenging games to them. All respect to those two teams. Um, so I, I don't know if they're in trouble, but it should be concerning that at this point, this is where we're at because it just seems like there should be some clear cut lines being drawn that are still very, very murky right now uh, with this team. I do think, and maybe this is, this is uh, wishful thinking. To me, it seems like it's pretty obvious who belongs in that midfield and who doesn't. And I, and I just, I don't know. I, I think we get to the World Cup and we see Sam Ewis and Lindsey Horan and I don't know. I think you pick the third player. I think Lavelle is fine as the third player in that midfield. Or Julie Ertz in the six or seems Julie to be the what six. they like. Yeah. Um, but I mean, maybe the issue is where you put Mallory Pugh at that point, and that's why she's she's been in that midfield mix. But right. It it doesn't seem like to me what I'm what I'm saying here is it doesn't seem like that complicated of a problem, and it seems like it's a problem that's being made very complicated as I mean frankly the outside back thing problem is the same right. issue where there's all these things that have like fairly simple solutions they're very good players that this country has produced that you can put on that field and are going to do very well at the international level and you can you know minimally tweak all of this stuff around and they're going to do pretty well and and it seems like there's this perpetual tendency to create problems where they don't have to exist right and it, it goes down to the the overcoaching, you right. know, question where the U.S. the position they should be in is we have all of these talented players, and man, isn't it isn't it a bummer that we have so many good players that some of them are on the bench, whereas it's turning into this other thing where wow, we have all of these good players, but they don't know how to play together and they don't know what their roles are, um, which 
there's one side of that where you feel pretty confident at this stage in the development going into the tournament and one where you worry that they're not going to find their way out of it. And we don't know. I mean, if you look at the way this stacks up, there's a possibility they're meeting a likelihood that they're meeting France in the quarterfinals. They're not going to have the time that they had in 2015 to figure it out mid tournament. So it's, you know, not hitting the panic button, but yeah, it's uh it's concerning. They play Australia on April 4th. They won't play another top team until they play Sweden in the group. Right. Yeah. That's not a great situation. No. Well, on that note, uh, that's segment two of episode 52 of the Equalizer podcast. Uh, We'll be back for the last segment to answer your questions. All right, third and final segment. As usual, we're going to answer some questions from Twitter. Uh, We got a couple, actually, a couple people referring to, we said that we were at uh, the Portland Invitational. People were wondering why that wasn't streamed. I know it's been, you know, streamed in the past when it was at Providence Park. Um, So I'll, I'll just take the first one that I see, is the fact that Thorns FC Invitational not being streamed this year, is it a step backwards? I'll hand that over to you, John. It, well, it wasn't streamed last year either because they're playing at, at um, the University of Portland. Um, I don't know if last year's was also due to construction, but this year it was due to the construction. So it was. I don't think it's a step back. It's just the way it is. Um, they have three security cameras up looking at the field, so if you can hack into those, I'm sure you can watch the game. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's not streamed. And, and, and even when... It was streamed at Providence Park. They only streamed the Thorns games. Mm -hmm. So if you were there watching what used to be Houston, Chicago, and and the U23s, um, they would have those games. They were filming them. You Mm -hmm. could watch them on the home um, screen on the video board, but they were not being broadcast if if the Thorns weren't involved. So, no, I don't think it's a step back. Yes, it'd be great if they were all streamed. And I think, you know, once they're back at, at Providence Park, that probably will happen. That's the word on that. Okay. Uh, Caitlin, is Portland in trouble with French likely gone with the U.S. Women's National Team? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think as we discussed earlier in the pod, I think Portland may be in trouble during the World Cup, but it's not going to be because French is gone. Because as I said, they're losing fully nine players, including French. So if we can go down the list, Adriana French. Emily Sonnet, Lindsay Horan, Christine Sinclair, Tobin Heath, Ellie Carpenter, Caitlin Ford, Haley Rasso, Andresinia. And some of those players are more ancillary to the team than others, but as I said earlier, some of them are very key. And um, I mean, I'll take Britt Eckerstrom in goal all day long if I can have Lindsay Horan. So. Right. I mean, for me, it sounds this sounds like a question that's carried over from a misconception from last year, which is that um, some of Portland's struggles on defense were because Adriana French was not there. Yeah, and there, you know that's not totally unfair because there definitely were moments where Eckerstrom struggled and and Portland conceded goals because of mistakes she made. But Portland's defensive problems last year were much much deeper than French being gone, and it was down to Mangas being gone for a few weeks, Sonnet being gone for a few weeks various players being gone at different times uh 
I think that I'm not going to, I'm not going to get too into detail about it, but they didn't play the same back line more than twice in a row for like the first 12 weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those problems were not just AD French. Those problems were the entire back line and, and that's going to be a different issue this year. Yeah. Um, next question, uh, asking for thoughts on Taylor Smith to the rain. This was another kind of bigger piece of news that came out this week. Um, for a couple of reasons, one being that this was the rain picking Taylor Smith up, knowing that she's likely not going to be match fit for all of 2019. She tore her ACL while she was playing in the W League over the offseason. Um, also, I think news to people that she was even up to be picked up. Um, she fell through uh, the waiver system from the Washington Spirit after, um, as I understand it, she was allocated with the U.S. Women's National Team. She was deallocated. And then that gap caused her to be out of contract over this offseason wherein she was hurt. And then the Washington Spirit made the decision to waive her. Um, not necessarily because of that happening, but it's a difficult process for clubs when they have a player get deallocated. Um, thoughts on Taylor Smith getting picked up, whether it be the fact that the Rain picked up a player for 2020 or um, the deallocation system in general. I think it sets up players for difficult situations like that. I mean, it's you have these players who are out of contract who get hurt, and then what are they supposed to do? Because, you know, from a business point of view, if you're Washington, you know, you're going to sign a player to to literally not play for a year, um, and that it, it's kind of a crappy thing to do, but. Uh, you know, again, you're you're paying literally for nothing in return in that one year. Um, but on the, the flip side of that, I think Rain, I think they looked at the situation and said, hey, we can sign this player to, I'm sure, what was not a huge contract, uh, rehab her. And I think we've all seen that Smith has a pretty high ceiling. And if they can get her back to that level, they will have picked up a player uh, by basically picking up a year of rehab. So it's a good deal on their part, too. Yeah, absolutely. Anything? Yeah, I was glad to see it just from Taylor Smith's perspective because I think that, as, I mean... She's you, had you some went, bad luck. You went through the whole list. She's yeah. had some real bad luck the last couple of years. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that she's going to have a place to play, going to have, you know, a place to do her rehab. She's yeah. not totally out in the cold. Right. Yep. Okay. Uh, speaking of things like allocation... Um, with the invitational in mind, uh, I'll just go ahead and take this one. Who could be the next U23 player to be called up internationally? I have no idea the answer to that question, but as said before, Ali Watt had a great game today, so, um, that's a player to watch. Uh, Ashley Sanchez got the lone goal for the U.S. 23s. She played quite well. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anyone else. I think Brianna Pinto had a couple really nice moments. Uh, anyone that I'm missing? Jalen Howell has yeah. been kind of on the cusp. Yeah. Emily was... Fox was on the team, but right. she's already been called up. Right. There's the one name from last year that people rave about, which is Katarina Macario. Yep. Right. Who's and in an interesting situation. She's in an interesting situation where she she's a very good soccer player. She plays for Stanford. Um, she uh, was not born in the U.S., but has indicated that that is the team that she would like to play for on the full international level eventually, but there are immigration issues that I believe will um, stop her from being eligible to do so until she's 24, which is, that's that's an, that's a long time. That's an advanced age for someone who's so, so young and so gifted. So um, she played quite well, but she's not going to be able to get a call-up for a while just due to that. Um, 
Let me see. Next thing. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Houston. I, John mentioned Houston Dash going to be most improved. It's possible. It, it, again, goes back to how they do during probably specifically that World Cup break. Um, we have a we have a good, actually, a really nice, thoughtful question from John Forsyth, which is, I find the coaching dilemma of starting your normal starters, starters versus bubble players in preseason games an interesting one. If you were an NWSL coach, what's your philosophy? Does it change if the game is versus a fellow NWSL team or versus a D1 college team? John, you first. I love this question because I think the... When, when you're looking at players, you have to think about who's surrounding them. And if what you see a lot of times when coaches like will test players out is they'll throw a whole lineup out there of, of new players. And the problem with that is that when you've changed so many different parts around a player, you can't really tell if that player can compete at that level. So um, like I look at what Chicago did today where, you know, for the most part, they had their regular lineup except for they played um Sharples and Sanchez out there um so there was like that one piece was different but they were still surrounded by the quality you would have seen in a normal NWSL game so you know if if I was in charge of a team that's kind of how I would do it very very small bits and pieces um so that when you're taking a look at players you're seeing what they look like with the rest of your team uh, instead of just saying like one game in here, let's just throw all of them out there at once because then it's Harry Carey and you, you can't really make any good judgments on that. Caitlin? Uh, I do think that it's a good question, but I, it's also in the context of this particular tournament, it's something of a moot point and this decision is kind of being made for the coaches just in that a lot of these starting players, I mean, all the U.S. internationals are leaving mm -hmm. tomorrow. Right. Um, so the way Portland is handling it, I know, is today was the day when they were going to play as close to their starting lineup as they could get, and then Wednesday is going to be the day when they kind of throw whoever out, see how everybody does, um, and then Saturday, whoever's around and is healthy and, and can still run some more. Um, I think Chicago's trying the same basic yeah, strategy. Yeah, we have, we have on good authority that that's a similar thing Chicago's yeah, going to be doing. I mean, it, it, a week-long tournament where you're playing three games, you don't have much of a choice but to do some rotation so um well and then i i want to maybe emphasize the follow-up question which is what do you see the value is there is a is there value in the nwsl clubs playing college teams to start out other than maybe you know fitness get you back into shape unlikely to get seriously injured in those matches um or but really does the preseason work mostly happen against other nwsl clubs I think confidence builders are important, mm -hmm. you know. Um, now, if you go play a college club and you lose, uh, obviously <laughs> that that's not a confidence builder. But yeah, I don't, I don't really, I wouldn't really see a difference in how I'd approach it based on whether it was Division One or another another pro team. Well, this kind of ties into what I think is our last question, which is, uh, do you guys have any biggest surprises or concerns so far this preseason? And I'll open this up to uh injuries um u.s women's national team bubbles availability is there anything that you've heard or seen this preseason that has set off a warning sign in your head for how this season is going to go i think orlando losing four nothing to north carolina says two things to me one that north carolina is still dialed in mm -hmm. 
Um, and again, they didn't really have much to do. Like they could have just showed up and I'm sure been pretty close to the quality they were last year. Um, but Mark Skinner's obviously got some work to do with that defense in Orlando. And that's supposed to be, by the way, be his specialty, that right. he had that reputation of taking a team which maybe didn't have as much talent, getting them to play solidly defensively, scraping out results. He's going to have to do that at least um, in the first part of the season. But it's also a very different job for Orlando, uh, or for for Skinner in Orlando, than what he was doing before in that um, – I mean, we saw someone like Tom Sermani, who was very, very good at pulling teams together from relative unknowns and, and younger players and, and putting them into a cohesive unit. And then when he was given the reins to more of a, a what, superstar charge team, it's just a different roster building philosophy. He struggled a little bit. So I, I, I think you're right. I think that... Um, People thought that this was going to be a positive based on Skinner's track record, which it should be, but Orlando's kind of a specific job, and it's going to take a very specific kind of coach to kind of figure that out. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think Orlando, we'll see what happens if we're going to see early 2018 Orlando or late 2018 Orlando, and don't know how that's trending. Caitlin, surprises, concerns. I think concerns wise, I've said all of my concerns, which is just that the, I mean, the, which we already knew, this isn't, this isn't new information. The league is going to totally change come the World Cup and it's going to be just a wacky year and it's hard to, it's hard to say what's going to happen. So that's not so much a preseason thing. That's just a general thing. That's my concern. That's your concern. Yeah. Any surprises? Any surprises? I don't know. I got nothing. Yeah, that's fair. Hard to remember a surprise, maybe. It was a, it was a surprise. <laughs> I won't say that. Okay. <laughs> I will say I will say that the I I found the Seattle U twenty three game very fun to watch. Mm. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that was a very fun game. Okay, uh, real final question. Um, and I, this question is about NWSL versus uh, the English league WSL. I'm gonna. With all respect to the question asker, I'm going to take this question and repurpose it, and this will be our last one, which is, um, we talked about this a little bit last week, but it, it I, I think you talk about a concern going into this year, which is um, talking about investment. This is a window of opportunity. Um, the NWSL right now does not have a TV deal. Uh, you talk about Nike kit launches, having trouble buying... The, you know, the U.S. Women's National Team, three-star kits and men's cuts, that sort of a thing. Um, the English League recently had a big investment in the league itself. They have a new, um, a new name sponsor. It's the kind of investment that the NWSL has kind of thought about, talked about, wanted for some time, which underwrites the league in a big way for the future. Um... I guess maybe my final question is we're in preseason. Obviously, you know, we have opening week in a couple of weeks. Um, do we think that this is a season of opportunity or do we think it's going to be too chaotic to really capture some of that stuff? Who's going first? I think it's both. Um, but I, I will say this just to kind of go along with this theme of the past few weeks, you know, we see, 
the English League signing the big sponsorship. We saw the massive turnout at the Barcelona game a couple weeks ago. We saw the, the big turnout at the Juventus game this past week. Um, I think for the first time, it's made me wonder if Europe's underlying cultural advantage in soccer is going to contribute to the U.S. falling behind on the women's side in a way that I didn't really foresee because, you know, you, you've you always had your your Lyons and your Frankfurt and your Wolfsburg, and, but they, they were anomalies, they, and they would play in leagues where they would win games 12-0, and it was never as competitive up and down as the NWSL or whatever American League uh, was, was operating at that time, but the that cultural basis of the game is so much stronger in Europe. And if it starts to switch into the women's game, like we saw with the Netherlands a couple of years ago, um, or what we might be seeing in Spain, or what we might be seeing in England, um, that could really give a big advantage to some of the European sides in the years to come. It's, it almost goes back to the conversation that we have within the league of independence versus partnership, where, yeah, the, the groundwork that's already been laid just for the sport itself could come into play. I think you're right. I think anyone who who's dialed into, you know, heaven forbid, the U.S. men's national team or MLS understands the difficult conversations that they're having on the men's side in this country. I don't think the women's side is immune. And, and in a lot of ways, that conversation is already even more difficult. Um, I don't know. Any big picture stuff to close, Caitlin? Yeah, no, I mean, I think those are, I think these are all good points. And it's an interesting question because it's, I mean, I've had the same thought before where it's very easy to see. I mean, you look at a country like France and they're producing, the, the players that they're producing, you know, their player pool is not as deep. But the, the good players that they're producing are very, very good. And that's where you can see the the like cultural advantage of the fact that they've been playing this sport for a much longer time than we have in this country and i mean not to be a debbie downer but i think the, the thing that they need to overcome is just that there is a lot of entrenched sexism around the sport in those countries and i think i think it's possible that that sort of right now is where that we might be seeing that start to shift and and like you said john you see these games at 60,000 people showing up for a women's game in uh in spain like that's that's a, you know, that's a, that marks a real shift, I think, potentially in attitudes towards this. And I think that the, the World Cup in France could be a real moment. And, um, you know, I don't want to be too optimistic about that, but um, I think it's an exciting thing having a World Cup in France right now. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what the cultural impact of that is. Right. The idea that in Europe, they're they are dealing with a women's soccer bias but they're not dealing with a soccer bias right whereas in the u.s you might be dealing with both and i think you know it might be one of these things where it's really good for women's soccer but not really good for u.s women's soccer right yeah, yeah. well that's a good way to close it so thanks everybody for listening to episode 52 of the equalizer podcast i am claire watkins i was joined by john halloran and caitlin best And uh, we'll be back to your usual programming next week. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Equalizer Soccer. 
We thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.